Hey there, everybody. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Glad to be with y'all today on this very beautiful and not at all rainy so far Friday afternoon here at the uh, here at the studio looking outside. A few clouds. The radar is not showing anything right now, uh, but there is a slight chance of rain starting around 5 o'clock. Some of the clouds do look a little bit darker than maybe I'd like, but otherwise... Looking pretty good right now. Uh, as we mentioned during the traffic update, yes, there is one vehicle accident with injuries up on the board. Be careful down there at Johnson around the mall. Uh, this accident looks like it's near uh, kind of where Barnes and Noble and, and Pet Boys are. So uh, be careful out there. I know that we're getting toward the end of the day traffic, especially going into a weekend. Y'all be careful out there. The Democrats, or at least some Democrats, have realized a problem. And they're working to fix it. It's in particular, a specific group of Democratic candidates across the country. This is a story at the New York Times. I find this fascinating for the political and cultural reasons. Democrats face pressure on crime from a new front, their base. In Baltimore, a crowd of several hundred voters listened closely as Wes Moore, a Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, unspooled a soaring speech about bringing a spirit of unity to state government. Introduced by a sparkling drumline and a row of local dignitaries on a bright and windy Saturday, Mr. Moore promised to deliver a better quality of life for East Baltimore on issues from education to personal safety. Listening uh, listening from across a small park was Teresa Armwood, a resident of the neighborhood. Miss Armwood, age 75, said she liked Mr. Moore's tone overall, but had not yet picked a favorite from the throng of Democrats seeking to lead the state. One subject was foremost in her mind, crime. Gesturing to a block of low-rise brick homes a short distance from Mr. Moore's bandstand, Miss Armwood traced what she described as a perilous journey from her door to the nearest mass transit. I walk from there over to the bus stop and from the bus stop back over there, she said, and I hope I get that far. In Democratic strongholds like Maryland, a rise in violent crime has pushed the party's candidates to address the issue of public safety in newly urgent terms. Even before the recent mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas, reignited the debate over gun control, day-to-day gun crimes and other acts of violence were rattling the American electorate. Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, a former police captain who made taking on crime the centerpiece of his campaign, has received the most national attention of these figures for his law and order rhetoric and more recently his struggles to implement effective anti-crime policies in office. Yet he is only one of a larger cohort of Democrats who have been campaigning on these themes. This piece at the New York Times is pointing out something that has actually been fairly noticeable, but the media and the Democratic Party has, uh, the National Democratic Party has largely ignored. We can talk until our faces turn blue about Uvalde, Texas, about Buffalo, about Parkland. We can talk about these mass shooting events, but the day-to-day crime, the day-to-day violent crime has been getting worse. And Democrats, particularly minority Democratic candidates, are starting to address it. That's the national. Let's look at the local. 
How many times have you heard Ian or Bernie in the morning on Acadiana's Morning News? How many times have you heard them bring up a story about a shooting here or in Opelousas or in one of the surrounding parishes, New Iberia, uh, anywhere, anywhere in the surrounding area or right here in Lafayette? How many times have you heard them mention a story of a shooting or some other violent crime that's taken place? How many times have we heard in state news some violent act, some violent crime being committed in New Orleans. Look at the crime rate in Baton Rouge, how much it's gone up. Over and over again, we're seeing more and more of these stories. And it's not because we're just paying attention to them more. It's because more and more are actually happening. There is a noticeable spike in certain types of crimes, particularly violent and gun-related crimes. And it was particularly noticeable over the last few years as major members of the Democratic Party has started their defund the police campaign. And what you'll also notice is that there are a lot of district attorneys, prosecutors, attorneys general, who have all basically said, you know what, we're going to stop prosecuting some of these smaller crimes. And it's invited more and more crime into some of these cities, these major urban areas have seen a rise in crime, but also, and this is what's got Democrats worried, you're also seeing a spike in crime in the suburbs. The suburbs were already a fairly tenuous Democratic stronghold. Suburban women leaned Democrat. Suburban men kind of mixed between Democrat and Republican, but suburban women, especially college-educated ones, tended to lean Democrat. But now when you look at the polling and look at recent elections, those demographics are changing. Suburban women are flipping back to the Republicans. Hispanic voters are moving to the Republicans. Black voters are getting turned off the Democratic Party. They're not moving to the Republican Party in the numbers the other groups are, but there's still a noticeable trend of them at least dropping their support of Democrats, some of them actually going over to the Republican side. Because the Democratic Party has, whether they've, they haven't openly endorsed it as a party platform, but they've said nothing to their politicians who have advocated defunding the police. They have not gone after members of their party who have implied that all cops are corrupt, the system is systemically racist. They have not hushed that tone on their own side. They have not policed their own side on that. And as a result, crime has been emboldened. More crime is being committed, particularly violent crime. It's not just the violent crime. Property crime is up, too. In major urban areas like San Francisco, like Los Angeles, they stopped prosecuting you know, petty theft from stores, from shops. Police were not arresting looters. You go in, you take whatever you want from the shelves, and the cops wouldn't do anything because they know the prosecutors weren't going to prosecute those cases. And it emboldened criminals. And so now you have the Democrats coming to terms with the fact that crime has to be fought. 
you have to actually be tougher on crime. When, when Donald Trump made a centerpiece of his campaign speech at the 2020 Republican National Committee convention, he talked a lot about law and order. He did that in 2016 too, but he talked about it in 2020 because it was in the wake of the riots that were happening all over the country. He was tough on law and order. He was excoriated. He was excoriated by Democrats and the media alike for his harsh tone because they wanted to make it all about race. Because in 2020, he was talking about the people who were rioting during the Black Lives Matters protest. And so they excoriated him. And now here we are just a couple years later. And Democrats are saying, yeah, we need to address crime. We're going to take a quick break, 232-1542, if you want to join the conversation a little later in the show. But more on this and more here on The Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk, 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to The Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk, 96.5 KPL. Here's the thing. The Democrats, particularly minority candidates in some of these races in Maryland and Baltimore and some of these other Democratic strongholds, minority candidates are realizing that the violent crime is disproportionately affecting their communities, disproportionately affecting minority communities. Here, let's see. Um, so the, the incumbent state attorney, Marilyn Mosby, in Maryland, facing a threat in the Democratic part in the Democratic primary from multiple candidates uh, who are challenging her record of responding to violent crime. She's also vulnerable because she's under a federal indictment on charges of perjury and financial misconduct. Her most prominent challenger, uh, Thiru Vignaraja, a former deputy attorney general of Maryland, has accused Miss Mosby of failing to develop complex cases against violent offenders and of sending a permissive signal to criminals by announcing she would no longer prosecute certain misdemeanors like drug possession and trespassing. From Vignaraja, I think traditional politicians have just misread what the people in these disinvested communities want. They don't want to unleash the police to do whatever they want, but they also don't want you to tell criminals there are no consequences for their conduct. Violent crime is disproportionately affecting poor, lower income, and minority communities. As a result, you're seeing an uprising from the Democratic base, the minority voters who have for years, for decades, stuck with the Democrats. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I've been telling you guys over and over again that voters are just up and leaving the Democratic Party. The, the, the polling currently shows it. Uh, Joe Biden's approval is dismal across the board, be it from inflation, being it crime, uh, foreign affairs, every, immigration, everything. The Biden administration, which is in charge, and when you're seeing these nationwide problems, the nationwide powers that be are given the blame. The Biden administration is seen as not handling it, and Biden is a Democrat, so the Democratic Party, by extension, is responsible for this. That's just how voters perceive it, rightly or wrongly, I think in this case, rightly. 
the Democrats have been very permissive, as this one candidate has said, of these crimes, of, of some of what they deem lower uh, misdemeanor crimes. But when you start getting away with misdemeanors over and over again, eventually you graduate to the next level. They get emboldened. They go for more and more. And then the crimes turn bigger and they're no longer dis, uh, misdemeanors. They're felonies. And the felonies eventually turn to violent crime because you just keep escalating and escalating and there's nothing to stop it. From the New York Times article, in 2020, Democrats faced a barrage of attacks from Republicans branding them as indifferent to violent crime and tying the party as a whole to the progressive criminal justice agenda that included directing money away from police depart departments and scaling back prosecution of low-level offenses. A report compiled in 2021 by three major Democratic interest groups, including the centrist organization Third Way, concluded that Democrats had spent the last election stuck on defense on crime. The party, the report stated, needed to have a proactive story about necessary systemic changes to policing that would stem the violence but still prioritize and provide public safety. In other words, defund the police hurt the Democrats and they had to defend themselves from those attacks from Republicans. They couldn't go on offense about how to reduce crime. Now, minority Democratic candidates are stepping in and that's what they're fighting right now. They're trying to go win. And they're trying to address this issue in a way that can not necessarily say, hey, we're on the side of, this, of what we said has been systemic racism this whole time, but we are promoting public safety and we're tired of the violence in our communities. And the Democrats are having to kind of throw all this together here at the tail end of 2020, leading up to the 2020 midterms. We've reached the point at this point in any midterm year, this is when the poll numbers are pretty much sunk in. Polling, uh, particularly presidential polling, rarely shifts much from this point into a midterm election. Biden's numbers are baked into the equation now. They're not going to change very much. Historically, they don't change very much between now and November. Some candidates may rise and fall. But for the most part, where the people perceive the country, where they perceive the issues affecting the country does not change. And despite what Democrats are hailing as a pretty good jobs report today, there's still a lot to be worried about. There's still a problem in the job market. There are still more openings than there are people who can fill them. There is still a lot of extra inventory that businesses can't get rid of because of inflation, because nobody can afford it. And there's a lot of people who can't afford a lot of things. And so lower income in, uh, communities in particular are being hit more and more by misdemeanor, felony and violent crime because the economic problems are so bad. And Democrats have signaled over the years that they're going to be, you know, not nearly as tough on because the system's just racist. And we don't want to unfairly target our minority citizens. It's spun out of control. And now the Democrats are trying to react at the last second. They're trying to pivot at the last second. And I'm not entirely sure that it's going to work for them. I'm not entirely sure that the Democrats are going to be able. Now, in, in some of these places, obviously, these are very Democrat-heavy places that this story in particular talks about. But as a whole, as a party, there's not much they're going to be able to do to turn it around in places where they're competitive. The Republicans will be seen as more effective on crime. We're going to take our bottom of the hour news break. When we come back, I want to talk about 
what's this abortion bill and what's some of this other stuff happening in the legislature? We'll have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. All right, I want to wade into a controversial topic because I'm not going to give you the traditional conservative party line on this one. I, uh, I, and again, it's because it affects my, pro- my profession outside of radio. So we've got uh, the, the constitutional carry bill in uh, the legislature was gutted and amended. And it is not, it's been replaced with language that is set to uh, arm teachers in schools in response to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. This is a tough one for me, y'all. Now, nobody is asking that every teacher go out and get a gun and bring it to school. That, that would be a, that would outright be a mistake. It's very, you know, one of the, one of the arguments the unions make in particular is actually an argument I agree with. It's very difficult to ask a teacher who is permitted in a situation like that to raise a gun and shoot a student they may have taught or may currently be teaching. I don't care the situation. If you're the type of teacher who makes connections with your students, your first reaction as a teacher is to going to be to try to de-escalate. You want to walk that kid that you've been teaching that you know that you've you've worked with before. You want to walk them off that edge. It's very hard, it's very hard to ask a teacher in that situation to pull the trigger. And in that instant, if the student knows the teacher is armed and the student is unstable, the student is not going to be de-escalated in that case. But the student can find themselves with an extra weapon that's been brought to campus by this teacher. Now, in some cases, if a teacher is former military or former law enforcement that's now in the classroom and they're properly trained for these situations, I can be amenable to that. You have more than just a school resource officer on the line in a situation. You've got some added security and safety there. And in part, some of that itself can dissuade a student from bringing a weapon to school, knowing that there are some teachers on campus, particularly teachers who have a specific background, who can step up and take action in a dire situation like that. I don't agree with, and and a lot of folks on the right, I've been yelled at this, I've, I've been yelled at about this before, I don't agree with this notion that some on the right have that, well, if we just arm teachers, if we just let teachers get their concealed carry permit and bring it to school, we're all good. That can help the situation. And no, it can't. Increasing the number of weapons on schools just gives a potential shooter more weapons to choose from should they run out of their own ammo. 
Should they lose a weapon, they have to drop it because they're running away from uh, security, whatever. Should a student who's unstable, who's unstable know where that gun is and in a moment of just a teacher blinks and that unhinged student gets a hold of their weapon, more weapons on campus, in my opinion, is not the route to go. But I can see, like I said, a situation where somebody with the right background and with the right training, not just a carry permit, but somebody who's actually gone through a law enforcement endorsed training for these types of situations that can provide a bit of comfort, not just to me as a teacher, but to others in the school system. One of the things that bothers me is that in, in the story at the, at the advertiser, so USA Today Network reporter Greg Hilburn's writing on this. He covers state politics. Last year, um, uh, Gonzalez Republican Eddie Lambert uh, was in favor of the bill to expand concealed carry gun rights for a success and for a successful uh, for an unsuccessful override of Governor John Bill Edwards' veto of the bill. But Lambert said the Uvalde shooting demands action. That's politically that's a bigger problem here than even whether or not we want to arm teachers in schools. The Uvalde shooting happened just a couple weeks ago, just a uh, a, a weaker week and a half ago. To make a policy in immediate reaction to an event like that is risky. It's an emotional reaction to a problem that needs a rational, thought-out solution. And when our knee-jerk reaction is to, well, let's just arm teachers, the knee-jerk reaction is not actually going to solve the problem. The problem with Uvalde, as I've said over and over and over again, is that various systems that are in place to make sure that these things already don't happen failed. The shooter raised every red flag imaginable. Clearly needed some sort of therapy, psychiatric treatment, something. The kid had a lot of mental instability. And people were aware of it. There was a video of the kid holding up a bag of bloody cats. He routinely cut his face just to see how it felt. Police on more than one occasion were called to his and his mom's house when they were having a shouting match and she was trying to kick him out of the house once again. Things that the system already should have picked on, picked up on, failed. And what politicians across the country want to do is just add more systems without fixing the ones that are currently in place. That, to me, is the problem. That, to me, is where we should be looking. 
because not to excuse the shooter, but it was entirely preventable. If the systems in place had done what they were supposed to, had acted and responded in the way they were supposed to. Even now, law enforcement itself was clearly not equipped to handle this situation. We've got a report out now saying that the commanding officer on the scene did not have a police radio with him. And he was not aware of the 911 calls coming from inside the school. Had he been aware of the 911 calls coming from within the school, they wouldn't have treated it as uh, they wouldn't have treated it as an armed shooter situation. They would have treated it as a hostage situation. Police actually thought that because the killer had already gone through and killed some kids, he was locked in a room by himself. There was nobody else there. They didn't know about the 911 calls coming from within the school that clearly stated he was in the room with living children. The systems that were in place failed. And now to add a completely new system and create some sort of program or something that would arm teachers when the systems currently in place need to be tweaked to make sure that our children are safe, adding another system that can cause more problems isn't the right answer. We don't need to arm teachers in response to a school shooting. We need to make sure that the teachers and the students are safe to begin with from anyone, parent, student, co-worker, anyone who is having some mental instability issues, some mental health issues. The mental health crisis is the problem. It's not the guns. It's not the lack of armed people on campus. It's the mental health crisis in our country. It's the systems that are currently in place that were not working. 232-1542. When we come back, talk about a little bit more that's going on in the legislature, including the abortion bill. I've got thoughts on that and your calls. If you want to call in, please do here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. A bit of a programming note. For all of you Mark Levin fans, I am, I regret to inform you. Well, I don't regret to inform you because it's a big night for us here in Lafayette. The Cajuns will be playing TCU at College Station in the NCAA Regionals. And the pregame will start at 6.30. The game starts at 7. You can hear Jay, Walk, uh, Jay Walker and uh, Brad Topham will have the call here on News Talk 96.5. KPL. be sure you turn in to tune in and support the Cajuns. Good luck to them tonight. Hopefully get a win and continue onward and see a very successful postseason play for the Cajuns. 232-1542 if you want to call in, be part of the conversation. So the uh, the next big topic of discussion right now is the uh, Democratic, uh, Democratic Monroe Senator Katrina Jackson's bill uh, that goes after uh, abortion in Louisiana. Would, have, would, would close the three abortion clinics in the state and criminalize abortion providers. Now, that's the big distinction here. Originally, there was a bill that would criminalize women who got an abortion, but instead, thankfully, we have a bill that would criminalize the abortion provider rather than those having the abortion. That bill is generating a little bit of controversy. One, because obviously there are activists in and in, in, you know, in the media and in the Democratic establishment who don't want any curtailing of abortion at all. But there is no exception for rape and incest. 
And that is a sticking point with some even more moderate uh, voters. And and this is one of those issues I'm kind of on the fence. Again. I, I, I do not believe that abortion should happen. However, in the case of rape in particular, and to a lesser extent incest, it's very, very difficult for a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody, but for a lot of people, it's very difficult for them to say absolutely without a doubt, ban it even then. Because very few people know somebody or have themselves been in that situation. And you don't really know how you'd react in that situation. Ideally, no abortion anywhere, anytime. Ideally. But the ideal doesn't happen. And rape incest exceptions cover a very, very, very small number of of abortions, but it's the means of conception, obviously, that has a lot of people worried. I'm glad the bill, you know, when we, whenever we talk about abortion exceptions, we talk about three things, rape, incest, and life of the mother. I'm glad the bill does not go after the life of the mother thing, because I think that's hugely important. Even the Catholic Church says in the end, you know, if you have to, when it comes down to it, save the mother. But the rape and incest issue is a, a, a it's a sticking point. Now, um, my own representative, Julie Emerson, who I love dearly and is a fantastic representative for me and for my area, has a, a and you heard this quote in the newscast. Julie has a fantastic quote that is worth noting. This one's tough, very tough. But at the end of the day, the child is innocent. That's. That's why abortion is such an emotional issue for voters. You are punishing. You are extinguishing the life of a child who did nothing except come into being. And abortion extinguishes a life before it's had a chance to become something. Before it's had a chance to live. And that, just as emotional as the rape and incest exception is the fact that this is an innocent child whose life is being snuffed out by the act of abortion. There's no easy answer to this one. Because when you think about it, when it comes down to you, when it comes down to your family, I've got two daughters. I've got a wife and two daughters. And in the worst case scenario, I don't know. I truthfully do not know. Pray to God that it never happens, but truthfully do not know if it came down to that situation. It's a tough emotional situation. But Julie is absolutely right. Representative Emerson of Karen Crow is absolutely right. At the end of the day, the child is innocent. And we do need to remember that. That's why the abortion fight is so personal, is so emotional. It is the life of a child. And while everybody in the media, the Democrats, all the actors, they're getting all up in arms about the rape and incest exception and the lack thereof, they're ignoring the larger point. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, 
Louisiana becomes a state where you cannot get an abortion, where you are saving the lives of children. But there's another part to it. One of the arguments, and it's actually an argument I am more sensitive to, although I don't think it's the be-all, end-all, it's not the saving grace of abortion. How this affects poor, low-income, minority women, these groups of women who may not have the means to take care of a child, because accidents happen. We can callously say, well, just don't have sex or use birth control or whatever. But accidents do happen. And the left will often say, well, if we made men responsible for these pregnancies, then, uh, then uh, abortion would be, you know, Republicans would be all for abortion. No. Republicans have been advocating for years. Republicans have been advocating for years. We should have we should have child support during the pregnancy, not just after birth. We should have child support during the pregnancy. We should hold men accountable. We should make fathers have at least some financial role in their child's life. The fact that we as a society don't push harder on that. We only focus on after the child is born, absentee fathers, no, uh, no good fathers who, who don't pay child support, who don't take a role in their kid's life. We should be advocating for that. It should not be just up to a woman who is single, has no husband, has no other husband or boyfriend walks out because they find out they're pregnant. Woman's left alone has to pick up a second, maybe a third job just to take care of herself and her child. There should be some sort of financial responsibility on the sperm donor in that case. We absolutely need to enforce that as a society. We have completely negated the impact of fathers in our kids' lives. Look at commercials that feature a husband and wife or a father and a family. The father's always the comic relief in these shows and in these commercials. The father, we've diminished the role of the father. You do need a positive male role model in a kid's life, preferably a father. Now, a two-parent household, whether it's a hetero or, or homosexual family, a two-parent household renders the most successful kids. But in the case of a single-parent or split-family household, Having that father figure, having a male role model in the child's life is important. And we should be in reinforcing that. So yes, we should be pushing for the fathers to take an active role, at least financially, in their kids' lives. We should celebrate that a bill introduced by a Democrat eliminates abortion in the state of Louisiana should Roe versus Wade be overturned. We should celebrate in Louisiana that we have a legislature that will at least do that much. And we'll see what John Bell Edwards does. 
because the guy that's touted himself as pro-life in order to win as a Democratic governor in a Republican state, if he vetoes this bill, we know he's been lying for the last seven years. And you know what, folks? That's going to do it for today. In the meantime, again, tonight, starting at 6.30, Raging Cajuns pregame, followed by a 7 o'clock uh, game time. Go Cajuns versus T, uh, TCU. We'll be back again after the weekend break here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. In the meantime, reach out on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast version of the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll talk to you guys again in a couple days.